Hi, I'm Mick Kelly, and this is Food Done Right. We saw this job for an artist and chef in Dublin. We looked at the job spec, and it, like, it ticked all my boxes, and then um, we sent in, um, applied for it anyway. And you didn't know it was Airbnb I didn't know it was Airbnb, and to be honest, I didn't know who Airbnb <laughs> was at the time. Like. Early days in the garden, we thought... We're in a brewery here. We're in the home of Guinness. We should try growing some hops. And then we would use them later in the year to make a, a small brew for the gardeners. Um, we brew that in the Open Gate Brewery. And uh, once or twice, it's also appeared on tap within the, the Open Gate Brewery tap room as well. Growing food completely changed the course of history. Somewhere along the way, we've become entirely removed from where our food comes from. But if we grow food, reconnect and care about our food we can change the future's course. Google's New York offices feed 10,000 people every day. While Food at Google is famous for its lavish abundance, the company has also embarked on a campaign to encourage healthier eating among their employees. Plates on the buffet line are two inches smaller than standard, vegetables are served before meat, and the gummy bears near the coffee machines were moved 10 feet further away and hidden in opaque canisters. It's one slightly dystopian example of food done right. How's it going there, Mick? How's it going, Baz? Uh, are you a gummy bear kind of guy? <laughs> I don't really know what that means. What What's a gummy bear type of guy mean? Would, would you I be, eat gummy bears? Would you be prone to shoving your uh, hand into a canister full of gummy bears when no one is looking? No, I wouldn't. Especially if it's an opaque canister. I don't. I don't. <laughs> eat, I, that sounds very strange. No, I'm not a gummy bear fan. That's good to said. hear. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. I'm. I'm a little bit lonely here. Um, you know, yeah. away from the office. Um, so we're back. We're back to remote working, um, which means our normal sort of rendezvous point somewhere in Grow HQ is 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 not working this time. So I'm I'm in Grow HQ today, but you're working from home in your in your lovely home office. Uh, well, home office is a bit generous, but uh, this this cold barren room uh, full of uh, full of some books, uh, but not quite the uh, uh, aspirational bookcase is um, it's keeping me company today. Yeah, and I guess like. Um, all companies, big and small, are grappling with kind of workforces working from home at the moment and Google, Google, one of them, presumably. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, like I, I guess as part of our, our Grow Circle program where we work with companies, um, I've got to visit, visit a couple of, um, the big tech companies and, and look at the kind of, um, the food offering. And it's, it's incredibly, impressive you know it's 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 sort of as you would expect i guess um you know that it's all laid on for their employees there's that sort of lavish abundance as you said um but i think there's also a sense that they've got this opportunity in the same way we've kind of spoken about the the chef's manifesto that chefs have you know this sort of outsized uh influence on what we eat through through eating out in cafes and restaurants the you know the chefs in these corporate kitchens have have um huge um you know they hold huge sort of sway over what their what their um employees are eating and because it's at such a vast scale it has huge potential for change as well so when chefs working in these in in these big corporates uh, turn their mind to sustainability and doing food right it can have this it can have a a massive um you know, even a wider societal implication, I suppose, beyond the company itself. And one one of the I won't I won't say who it was, but I remember one of the chefs telling me that during a very because because employees are so reliant on on the company food offering for their you know often in often um, times they're getting breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, you know in the corporate canteen. Um, they get so used to that that actually their some of their you know their cookery skills can suffer or or not get developed at all. Um, and during one of the really bad the the bad snowstorm a couple of years back in Ireland, um, they had to actually open the office back up so that employees could come in and get their food because they were actually <laughs> worried that they they wouldn't wow. know what to cook for themselves. You know what I mean? So it has this huge influence on on that that demographic, I guess of of um employees working away um in companies yeah. like that 
That's amazing. Um, so before the pandemic turned the world of work upside down, uh, a very study showed that about 50 to 70 percent of people were eating lunch at their desk. Um, and so aside from the food itself, you know, that also means missing a chance for exercise, you know, not taking a mental break from emails and so on. Um, so I have to confess, you know, I was one of those people myself. Um, but of late, I've been working from home, um, you know, that for, for most of the last two years now. Um, and, you know, one thing that, that has, that has brought about is given me the chance to harvest my own greens to start with. Um, but also, you know, spend a bit of time with my wife and, and baby son having lunch. Um, which has been obviously really, really nice. Um, and so as work evolves into these more hybrid setups, uh, is there an opportunity to improve the way we eat during the working day? Do you think? Um, I think it's a kind of double-edged sword, isn't it? Like, because, um, I think, I think the challenge is like in the word hybrid, because if it's, if it's a mix of working from home and going into the office, then I think routine suffers. And I think routine is, is probably central to, to sort of healthy eating. You know, I think you need to get into a kind of routine. So I think if you're doing a few days in the office and a few days at home, maybe that suffers a little bit. I, I yeah, think. That is interesting. I mean, I, I've definitely haven't, um, haven't got into that, that mixed setup at the moment. It's been, been pretty much all working from home for, for the last couple of years. But, um, but yeah, you're right. You know, I think, I think, um, um, the more it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because in, in some ways, the more programmed we are, you're right. The, the, the easier it is to make sure that there's the time allowed, but maybe you could also start relying on bad habits that way as well. Sometimes being, being kind of taken out of your, mm-hmm. uh, out of, out of your, normal normal rhythm um helps to kind of remind you of of what you want to be doing so um so what do you eat for your lunch then when you're when you're working from home um that's a very personal question isn't it i uh (laughs) you weren't expecting that were you (laughs) well you were about to ask me so i said i'd jump in and get that in first you know well, I'm at risk of, of sounding like a massive cliche here, Mick, because yeah. uh, as you know, I That's live... That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> well, <laughs> as you know, I live not too far away from Seagull Bakery, which is uh, undoubtedly the, the best bakery in Ireland. Um, and so we, we do spend uh, basically all of our money on, on sourdough bread. Um, and we have tried making it. It hasn't been very successful, to, to be perfectly mm. honest. It, although it's actually, it has been successful, but the it just, it propagates so much, you just end up swimming in sourdough starters. So it's a yeah. lot of sourdough bread. It's a lot of soup this time of year. Um, yeah. We've still been harvesting greens from the, from, uh, from the beds outside up until I think, I think we're just about finished with the last bits of the rocket and the kind of hardier, hardier greens. So, um, still, try, still just about keeping the salads alive. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of hearty soup, a lot of, a lot of sourdough bread. Um, that'd be nice. kind of staples. You get the focaccia from Seagull. That's, that's a, a winner every time, isn't it? Uh, only on special occasions. That's wedding anniversary stuff right there. <laughs> Um, you could live a little buzz in fairness, you know, it doesn't have to be just wedding anniversaries. It's not that expensive. Yeah, I know it's, that's, it's, it's special. I, I'm kind of a batch cooker, like, so I'm the lunch, the lunch guy. So my wife's a teacher. Um, and so she's heading off to school as well as the kids. So I just batch cook on a Sunday and lots of things in flasks for myself and Aish, and then the kids get their, get a sandwich or whatever. But it means that then... You've got whether I'm working from home or heading in here to Grow HQ, it's kind of I've got something that I can put into a flask and have a bit of a bit of a bit of a, a slurp on during the day, you know. Nice. And you're you're not pining too much for the regular lunch at Grow HQ. I suppose you, you are still getting your, your lunch at Grow HQ uh, sometimes yourself. Yeah, like I've I've taken to start like I, I like organizing lunch meetings now on Thursdays <laughs> and Fridays so that I can I can um because the the meze menu here, which is their kind of bit, you know, it's the most change, changeable part of our menu. So it reacts to based on what's coming out of the veg garden. Um, so I love trying the mezes every every week, you know, try a couple of a couple each day. Um, nice. So I'm well fed. It's it's fair to say. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, so. We'll have to find out uh, how other people are fed, not not just ourselves, Mick. Uh, so mm. our first guest uh, is Morris McGeehan. Uh, he's a chef who has been creating some of those sort of out of the ordinary uh, food experiences for uh, a range of interesting workplaces. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Morris is a really cool guy. I met him up at um, a food festival. We were on a panel together um, a couple of years ago and... Um, Morris has a really interesting background, like chef, um, 
um, chef down in in South America for a couple of years, owned his own restaurant um, and came from a farming background in rural Ireland. So he's got that kind of understanding of of local seasonal food. Um, But the thing that really interested me about him was that um, um, and there's a bit of a bit of a thread here, I think, of of chefs. Um, leaving the very busy restaurant world for for um, something something different, and so when I first met Morris, he was he was the um, he was the head chef in Airbnb, um, and you know providing that corporate you know corporate um, dining environment, but doing it in a way that was just basically like Grow HQ, you know, except without the growing, I guess, but everything in every other respect, he was doing unbelievably sustainable local seasonal food and and actually Airbnb are unusual in the sense that they have their own you know he was an Airbnb employee it wasn't outsourced to somebody else which I thought was really 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 interesting um and then more lately he's he's made the move into becoming the um performance chef for the RFU which is another just you know such an interesting career sort of sidestep or or change I think as well and so he's bringing that sustainability focus then to you know to our our elite athletes in the country um so just a really interesting guy with an unbelievable passion for um sustainability and seasonality and an understanding of food which is not as common as you might you might uh, hope for or expect in chefs um so let's jump in and have a listen to Morris. First of all, Michael, thank you for having me on. Um, it's an honor to be on your, your podcast. And yeah, going back to the very start, um, yeah, so my parents had a bar and we had a farm. We had cattle, we had sheep, um, predominantly sheep. You know, we had about 300 to 400 head over the years. Um, the cattle, you know, I grew up with the cows, you know, we used to milk our own cows. We had milk coming into the kitchen um, and we pasteurizing it. Um, you know, uh, we got rid of the cows later on and we're just left the sheep. But like, I suppose growing up on the farm, uh, gave me, gave me that relation of what producers, um, the procedures producers have, you know, you know, whatever it may be, if, if it's crops growing, if it's sheep, like, so, you know, when you, when I get lamb into the kitchen, like I would look at that lamb and I, I know exactly the process that that lamb got would take to get to be here in, in the kitchen and and that was a benefit to me and you know it was good to see it from kind of both ends as a chef you know obviously you know years in the kitchen we have our end of things but like seeing things from the other end as well from the farmer's perspective is very important i think it's very important for like building up relationships and 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 working collaboratively with, with farmers and producers and that i suppose it's common yeah. ground really when you're talking to them. yeah uh, there's an understanding um, uh, to build that relationship with, with, the, with the producer or farmer. So when, when I kind of met you first, you were in Airbnb. I think most people would know Airbnb, obviously, but they have a huge corporate presence in Ireland. Um, and I met you, you were, you'd come back from Brazil. You were executive chef in, in Airbnb. Um, and it's hard to sort of paint this picture for people, but like, Obviously, most big corporates now, they outsource their catering function to one of the big, you know, the big catering firms. But Airbnb mm. were doing something very different. It was all done in-house. And I suppose my my interest was coming from here in Grow HQ, where we have a very similar, you know, we have a very specific approach to food. We want it to be all local, all seasonal, homegrown, etc. Mm. And it was like, it was like almost like just seeing a corporate version of Grow HQ, like it was just phenomenal that it was so, Yeah, it, it was basically like if you were to dream up from a kind of a sustainability and a, and a climate change and seasonal eating and sustainability perspective and, and t- like put that into a corporate environment, that's what it was. That's what it came across as like, which is just, it's just phenomenal. Like what, what did you... I mean, how did you get from rest, you know, owning your own restaurant in Brazil to to doing that in the first case? And then what was your, you know, it strikes me as they they seem to have given you free reign to to just go for it, like and bring that ethos kind of writ large on a big corporate environment. Yeah. So I think uh, what happened was we were having our first baby, and um, we were finding it very difficult any time in the restaurant. Our days were closed, were maintenance, cleaning. We had a beautiful beach in front of us. We never went to it. And then when we're, but Priscilla was pregnant, 
we said, well, we can't, we can't, um, we can't have the baby here because you're sort of time. So that was kind of, we, we up shop and came back to Ireland. So we kind of work around a few places, short term Donegal to have found something that um, I can actually fit into, you know, the share my food ethos. And um, we, we saw this job for an artist and chef in Dublin and uh, we looked at the jobs back and it like, it ticked, it ticked all my boxes and then um, we sent and um, applied for it anyway and you I, didn't know it was Airbnb I didn't know it was time, Airbnb you know? and to be honest I didn't know who Airbnb <laughs> was at the time like, I just got back from Brazil um, like, I was a little bit behind everything that was going on in Europe I know it was an American company like, but it wasn't in Brazil at the time and um, I found out after I mean, the first interview it was Airbnb but I think with my background in international um, cuisine uh, with 10 years in London my approach to sustainability you know, we were like a hand in glove. Everything I was aiming for to achieve, they were too. So it was quite a lengthy uh, interview process. You know, there was 13 interviews to get into the position. But Holy you know, over, moly, over, 13 interviews. Over two months, yeah, yeah, over two months. <laughs> um, sometimes we had four back to back, you know, and uh, 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 it was an experience, I'll tell you. But uh, no, it was good. It was all positive. Uh, it was great. And we had a cook-off, you know, at the end and, and uh, like a mystery hamper and I thrive for mystery hampers. I don't know why. I just love getting mystery ingredients and asked to be make to make something out of them. And um, so I done well in that. And um, yeah, so I got the role. And um, so we came. So I came into Airbnb then, and uh, I was in for a couple of weeks, and then they sent me off to the US to help open up the uh, Portland office. So they were just starting their um, uh, food program as well. And I think the whole thing about sending me over to there was that they wanted me to kind of get uh, the essence of what they're doing, especially when I went down to San Francisco for a week. So it was a week in Portland and a week in San Francisco down at the uh, HQ, Airbnb HQ. And uh, just wanted me to see the essence of it, not really replicate it, but see what they were doing and make it our own and build from it. And and that, that was the blank canvas that I had. Now, when I went in there, everything they were doing is everything I would have been doing anyway. So when we started off in Dublin, we just done the exact same thing. And our whole ethos was that every it's going to be healthy, nutritious food for everybody, but it's also going to be everything that's made from scratch. So we kind of started off with six chefs. Um, the kitchen was offsite at the time, so we we're delivering into the Watermark building. Um, so we, it was a bit of logistics, but we were still able to provide really high quality, you know, uh, food that was being transported, you know, from a mile away into the offices. Um, then we started doing our breakfast and things kind of grew incrementally. And then we ended up with a large team, in the end, I think we're about 25 uh, to 30 between porters and chefs on, on the back of house team alone. And it was like, I mean, where I visited, you had obviously moved then into its own, your mm. own building. And like, it seemed like it was like, not not quite money, no object, you know, but you know what I mean? It was like the best of equipment, mm. huge team working for you. And also then, I, I, I know you said to me at the time that, like corporate chefs in particular have this huge procurement power. Like, so you had the ability to, to really support local sustainable mm. producers because you were buying directly from them as opposed to through a, through a middleman or a middle catering company or whatever. Well, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, we, 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 we were very lucky, you know, I mean, there's a lot of companies will have nominated suppliers and these are the people you deal with and that's it. And, uh, but we had, we had great, uh, buying power, from uh, different suppliers. We could pick and choose who we wanted to fit into our criteria. Um, we had, and end, when I left, we had over 200 uh, small producers supplying to Airbnb. You know, that was everything from our own honey, down from Hyde Mine, from my career down in Cork, to Dunlavin Dairy, where it was a, it was a small dairy in, uh, in uh, County Wicklow. Uh, we we, we uh, were getting urns in instead of, um, you know, big plastic uh, uh, bottles. Um, Milk bottles are coming in as well, like so. We eradicated thousands of uh, plastics going to landfill that way. Um, uh, beach lawn farm as well, like organics, you know. So whatever in season was coming through, we we Castle Rotary farm as well, like so. We 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 hundreds of amazing small producers around Ireland, you know. And, you know, it was challenging, you know, to the to the point where sometimes they didn't meet the quota that we needed, but it was fine because we had we had a couple of different farms, so we could get X amount from here and X amount from there, so to make up. If we needed 50 kilos of carrots and we'd get 25 here and 25 there. Um, but it worked well with them as well. Building relationship was the most important part of that, especially with the fish and um, and, and, and the uh, growers, because a lot of the time they're left with excess stock 
that you can't get rid of. You know, and I said to him, listen, don't don't be afraid to reach out to me and tell me what you have and I'll see what I can do. And a lot of the time, having flexibility with your menus is very important to, uh, to avoid food waste. So, be able to react then exactly, and adapt. Yeah, exactly. So whatever they had. Whatever they had. Now, listen, it, it was coming to the end. What were they going to do? It probably went into land, onto the land again for composting. But we were, we were able to work out a price. And we'd like if it was 100 kilo beetroot, which has happened, like we got a hundred kilo beetroot, like so, you know. But then we had we had avenues inside to deal with a hundred kilo beetroot it was fermenting, pickling, uh, you know, if it's the salad bars, if the main courses, like it didn't last. Yeah, I remember you very proudly walking me around the cold room, and and it looked very similar to the cold room here. Actually, lots right. of jars of various things bubbling away and all of that, yeah. you know. So it was like. It was really cool. And, and like, obviously then you had the opportunity to, for you and the company, I guess, to sort of educate and surprise people around like climate friendly menus and zero waste and so on. Can you give us a couple of examples of like yeah. zero waste recipes and things you were, you were doing there? Yeah. So I suppose to kind of explain it, um, we were a little bit different from other tech companies. Um, it's like we didn't provide multiple different options and services. We had one lunch menu. And that lunch menu over the week will cover every every taste, every want, and every need in the office. So most of the vegetarian dishes were vegan. We had a, had a meat dish and we had a vegetarian dish. We'd have uh, two veg options, two starches, a simplified protein option as well in there, uh, soup, uh, vegan uh, or vegetarian or, uh, or a meat-based soup. But in our production, we... We had the Leffy Trust was a separate kitchen. So we done most of our production there. And there's always byproducts that come out of there. So we're left with all these byproducts. And the chefs on the service and producing uh, the lunch at the time didn't have time to, to kind of um, process it. So we had a craft program um, that was, at the time, wasn't doing that much. You know, they were, they were supporting the other chefs when they needed to, but they were kind of making stuff for breakfast, making specialized stuff from the salad bars, you know, like, um, like different types of dressings, uh, um, hummuses and all that kind of thing you know and then the evening then they'll be doing like uh, healthy cookies or, or, or um, uh, fruit bo- uh, fruit bliss balls with dried fruit um, protein balls or, or, or um, flapjacks granolas that kind of thing so we always used to kind of distribute snacks around the office crudités with different types of dips uh, around four o'clock to keep the blood sugar levels up with healthy um, healthy wholesome food so i started developing the craft program for it to start taking in all the byproducts that was coming in from the various kitchens. So we had two kitchens at that stage. So we, 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 we got systems in place where we started processing it all. Like, so if it's pickling, a lot of fermentation was going on, was going on you know, with the leaves. Um, like we used to we'd have a lot of cauliflower leaves. We'd be fermenting cauliflower, kimchi, sauerkraut, that kind of thing. Uh, we also process them down until we could use them in stir fries. But the key with the byproducts is, is that the product, when it comes in, it has to be fresh. There's no point in having a byproduct and you're looking at it and it's old and wilted. It's, it's no good. It's gone. It's been. It's been. It's taken too long to get get to you. And that was the key. So it has to be quick. It has to be quick. And that's the key thing about about food waste as well. Is you know uh, your byproducts they're fresh. They're like a vibrant new ingredient. And I think that's the thing that I'm trying to 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 get across is that I think the chefs need to change the psyche of how they look at byproducts. I think they need to stop looking at it as a trimming or something going into the bin. They need to start looking at it as something that's beautiful that can be used in something. And if I give you an example, if you get a lovely head of uh, cauliflower to come in, you've got these lovely, crisp, uh, fresh leaves on the outside. If they get sliced off, you leave the leaves here and then you start working on the florets. You've just worked on the florets, but now you've got the, the leaves that's there as well. So I think, I don't think, but I know, I think we need to change the way we think about it and afford these leaves, the amount of respect that the threats got in the prep. So we need, we need to look at it as we need to spend time on this because this is ingredient the same way the threats was ingredient. And we can do so many yeah. different things out of them as well. We've become like, it's extraordinary how kind of myopic we are about vegetables, actually, that like this is the part we eat and the rest yes. we throw out when, when actually you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Like they're, they're just different ingredients, like exactly. often just, just as delicious and just as healthy for you and all of that. And I think we can take some inspiration from like uh, different countries. I mean, even in Pakistan, India, where there's a lot of vegetarian cooking, like if you see the cauliflower, like the leaves are going into that cauliflower and they're beautiful yeah. inside them as well, you know. So, you know, and there's loads of recipes there. I remember seeing in 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 a market in France they were selling um, like the 
uh, with charred leaves, you know, the, mm. the actual stalks, the, they were selling the stalks and um, I presume people were using them in gratins and, and, and stir fries wow. and whatever. Like, that's, but, that's great. But that's yeah, like, yeah. you know, that the stalks were for sale is such a French thing, isn't it? It's like yeah. we're, we're actually going to buy the things that normal people try. It's brilliant. You know? and, and like there's been multiple times where I've done actually a whole service by just using uh, cauliflower leaves and broccoli stalks, cutting into stir fry. So that's my whole veg for that day, you know. And it's just an awesome feeling to to do that and 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 to be able to to say that nothing went into the, into the bin. So come here. I I could talk for about five hours about Airbnb because I just I I was just blown away by it. And and any any kind of um, software engineers or techie people listening to this, if you're your next job, uh, you could do a lot worse than move to Airbnb. I think. But I want to move on because your next career move, I think, is like pro- probably even more interesting. So you ended up as as um, performance chef for the IRFU, and and that hence my reference at the start about the autumn the autumn test series, uh, go Ireland, uh, three wins from three, um, and all that. Um, but obviously, like what 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 jumps off the page for me about that job and particularly for someone who's interested in sustainability and is interested in eating more plants and all that like rugby players obviously very very specific need in terms of nutrition and protein and the 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 stereotype is that they're going to need loads of meat and you know how how do you approach this this then while you know trying to have climate friendly menus and sustainable and zero waste menus and so on uh, with the needs for with I I'm 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 assuming the needs around nutrition trump everything else when it comes to professional athletes like these guys. But how do you, how do you approach that then? So my menus will be kind of written in advance. Um, so I, I normally do a four week menu rotated three times for each season. So when I get that menu done, um, I would give it to the performance nutritionist who would put it through uh, Nutritics. Ninety nine percent of the time it's actually fine because leaving Airbnb with a health food culture, you know, so that we, we don't deep fat fryer. All the food was like, uh, was made, was nutritionally dense, homemade food, seasonal, locally sourced. And um, so I brought that into the IRFU with me. Now, in regards to the meats, I mean, yes, that's true, but also it's not true. You know, um, when the guys come into me, you know, they'll eat a well-balanced meal, you know, um, you know, they're big plates, the big guys, because they've got a high calorie intake for that day. Like, Where are you feeding them? Like, just, just to give people a, a sense of this, this is like on training days, on match days that you're only actually training. providing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm only based, training. Yeah, I'm based in the high performance center. So basically all I do is, 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 is cater for their needs during their training sessions or training camps. You know, and a lot of that's got to do with recovery. Like, so you'll have the three hours of recovery, you know, you have rehydrate, refuel or rehydrate so your, your liquids you bring in like so we'd have a kefir smoothie uh, different one every day so when they come up they'll have the kefir smoothie so that's the fluids um refuel so that's the carbohydrate content and then re- repair which is the protein now the lads look they'll come in and they'll have a balanced meal they'll come in they'll take a bit of all the salads and um, they'll have a soup and they'll have a, have a decent plate of food now sometimes when there's a really nice meat dish on like they might kind of overload on it like but but overall, you know, they're very disciplined with, with the portions they take. Um, and I suppose to go back to your question is how to make appealing to be uh, to do like uh, like reduced meat and that. Like we do do other options. Like we do have a lot of beans and pulses in the salad bar and the soups and the main courses as well. Uh, a lot of nuts, you know, um, uh, corporate nuts where we can, seaweed, do a lot of bone broths. So there's a lot of collagen into it. Uh, we use meat as a seasoning sometimes. So sometimes when we do a gammon, we have a gammon on for lunch. I keep that stock. Now that stock could be a sauce for the gammon or it could be sauce for something else or it could be a soup. But whatever trimmings come off that um, gammon, we normally use kind of like for a carbonara uh, for the sevens would, would be more of a carb-focused, uh, smaller plates for the, for the uh, Ireland sevens teams. So if you put in the trimmings from the from the gammon in there, they've got the protein from the uh, from the egg and the... And the um, and the parmesan as well like so you're kind of you're kind of making it more sustainable by reducing meat and just kind of being a little bit smart of it smart about it you know um even with meat soups as well like foals or ramen or you know any of the meat broths we do as well like you know you're only kind of you're only using a little bit of meat tofu um egg dishes as well like uh, you know we put different kinds of egg dishes if we're using egg yolks for a sauce we left the egg whites so 
what I do is I kind of spread the egg whites on a tray with silicone mat and frizzle with olive oils, olives, uh, basil, uh, um, sun-dried tomatoes. And you put it in the oven for 90 degrees for 15 minutes and you've got this lovely sheet of white egg. You just cut off the sections that always creates kind of a bit of a conversation in the salad bar. We're like, what's that? You know, so it's presenting things a little bit differently. That's non-meat that creates a bit of interest and it always gets, um, always gets uh, you know, fired really, I suppose. But then there's other ways as well. There's, there's a company called Beasol. Uh, they're doing a, a spent grain. Um, so a spent grain from the breweries to go around. And uh, it's, it's, uh, so they dehydrate it and make it into a flour. It's not really flour. It's more of a, it's more of a super grain kind of mix, but like a flat is it, seed. Is it barley or what? Barley, or what oats and um, hops. Barley, oats and hops. And uh, <clears throat> there's amount, the amount of um, spent grain that gets thrown out, you know, globally is like hundreds of millions of tons every year. Those compost or animal feed, but these guys are doing something great. They're kind of reducing it, reintroducing it back into the food system. So this lovely multi kind of flour that, that you can put into your like the guys are having pancakes. I will make the pancakes from oat eggs, you know, high protein sources. But this flour uh, grain has a high source of protein in it. But also they're messing around with the, with the uh, liquid that's coming out of it. So I've asked them for like a, a pressed liquid, and they've sent it out to me a while ago. And I've actually made a kind of a soya substitute out of it. Which like it's it's identical identical to a keycap, which is an Indonesian soy sauce. You wouldn't know the difference, but the thing about it is, um, it's local. It's coming from up the road, and instead of taking it from the other side of the world to come here, this is what I'm using. That's brilliant. Keycap. I saw some videos you posted on Twitter recently showing the food laid out for the squad, and as you say, like it's there's lots of plant protein in there, uh, lots of sort of like some of the things you've mentioned, the kefir and and um, uh, tofu salads and date breads and all sorts. Like, are are any of the players kind of do they need convincing to try new new things, or are they uh, do, do they come across as adventurous eaters, or are they so structured that they're afraid to try new things? They they like they like something out of the norm, so they like something different. Do they? Yeah. And, and it creates yeah. it creates a topic, uh, a conversation about it. You know, if you're putting stuff on, you, you say, "What's this?" and then you explain it. You know, and, you know, uh, yeah, they're really, really adventurous, and um, they really, really love trying uh, new dishes. And as I said, like I try to do international dishes, but using as much Irish ingredients as I possibly can to make those. Um, and uh, you know, it makes it makes the camp more enjoyable. You know, when you have an intense training session kind of look forward to coming up to a really nice meal to kind of switch off it strikes me mars like um we're talking about food done right in the workplace effectively like you've you've been um cooking for one of the biggest companies in the world and some of the best athletes in the world the best you know the best at what they do in the world um and i think you're like the fact that you're bringing these like this this focus on sustainability and and zero waste and local and seasonal food into that those environments i think is just is just such a credit to you but if 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 there's one thing you could change about how the working world eats what what would you like to see changing on a on a global level yeah i think on a global level like i think the way we eat you know the world's changing dramatically and the way we eat is contributing to to this so i think we all need to kind of take a step back and just just be aware of what we're eating and how we're eating and change, change your habits. You know, you, you don't have to have like a, a I suppose a, a, a complete change in a week, but make incremental changes over time and, and get used to trying new things, you know, so local and seasonal is, 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 is key in that, but also just not buying unethical ingredients is a massive one for me as well. Like, so, um, you know, look at, look at the life cycle of the foods, you know, how much water travel, how many, What's the carbon footprint of it? You know, you know how much, how long has it been in storage? You know, well, what's the nutritional value of this now? You know, so it's kind of being a little bit savvy about that. But I think the second thing for me would be food equality as well. You know, uh, you know, accessible of, of healthy, nutritious food for everyone. You know, and and this is a global thing. And and even here in Ireland, like one in five school children go to school hungry uh, or bed hungry because there's not enough food at home. Like, and that's twenty percent of the of the of the of the children in Ireland. You know, you look at the U.S. has been this wealthy country and there's 50 million people in the U.S. every day that don't have enough food to put on the table. You know, and I think we, like governments need to be doing more to help the developing countries to be self-reliant and promote 
food security more. There's a people uh, on the ground locally, you know, they set their own uh, rules on, on the food, you know, what they can and what they can't grow and what's better for the area, what promotes biodiversity more than anything else. Instead of like these large monocultural crops, you know, that's, that's, that's having the opposite effect. We need to be looking at food security for all. Brilliant way to finish, Morris. And I think it's fair to say, obviously, you can take full credit for Ireland beating the All Blacks. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> you Blake. should be looking for a raise. Whatever they're paying you, you need they need to double it right away. Uh, so congratulations. Thank you. Um, and thanks a million for taking the time to talk to us and keep, keep fighting the good fight. Cool, cool. Thanks, mate. Such a deadly story, Baz, isn't it? Like, just that passion that Mars has to to eliminate food waste and go on the extra mile for 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 the planet you know I think is um reminds me a lot of JB but uh here in Grow HQ but like I think just the the idea of these um massive rugby players like chowing down on roasted squash and hazelnut salsa and wild rice and you know it just it just can't can't help bring a smile to your face when you think about it but like I really like that it's it challenges as well that notion that that um you know vegetables can't can't equate to performance either so he's he's combining kind of a climate friendly diet um with with peak performance and that's just getting it all to taste as good as it does then is just it's some some tribute to him you know Absolutely, yeah, Mick. And uh, I suppose to prove that point, we have a clip here from Irish rugby legend Paul O'Connell talking about Morris directly, uh, if we can play that. I'll tell you, the guy, the chef in the High Performance Centre, I'm sure you spoke to some of the Ulster players, is an incredible yeah, guy, a guy yeah. called Morris McGeehan. The, the, the best food I've ever eaten. The players love going into the High Performance Centre. So, Jeez, that is that's some some uh, quote from Paulie there. I'd say Morris will have that. Um, I'd say that's his, his ringtone on his on his mobile at this stage. <laughs> class. How do you get that on your LinkedIn profile? Is the big question. Yeah. Um, so from one Irish icon to another, we're now going to head to the home of Guinness. St James's Gate is not just home to a famous brewery; it's also home to a famous garden. Famous in our eyes, at least. Uh, our community manager, Molly, is back to speak to our next guests. Molly, how's it going there? Hiya, Barry. Can you tell us about this week's Star GI Wire? I sure can. So this week we are heading over to Dublin, chatting to Tim Holmes, a senior executive at Diageo who spearheaded the movement of food growing at the heart of St. James's Gate. He had a lot of wisdom about how to start a food garden in your workplace, but we began today's conversation on a more personal note, how he started growing food in the first place. My parents and grandparents were keen growers and always grew some of their own their own food um, on, on both sides of the family. So I was always being exposed Exposed to food growing from from my earliest years, and you know, obviously, mainly when you're a child, is about picking things um, and um, enjoying the fresh raspberries or peas or whatever it is that are growing, um, and always helping out around the place. And I guess that that gets into you. Um, and uh, you know, when I left home, I always seemed to have a few herbs growing on windowsills and patios or balconies or whatever it was and you know those herbs traveled around with me as I moved around the place and eventually when I, I got my own house I planted those herbs in the garden and then started to grow a few things as well things that I kind of thought I knew how to grow or grow rather because they're things that are grown I've seen being grown through my childhood um and uh, started on a very small scale. And I guess I've been doing it ever since. There's always something to discover and always some something new to try. And I think that's fascinating. Um, and it always you know, keeps the engagement going be, be, you know, with a child or, or with, uh, with an adult in the workplace or just, just in their own garden. Um, there's always something to learn. So you have this built up knowledge and interest and passion, bringing it to St. James's Gate and suddenly there's an opportunity to start a garden there. What was that like? Yeah, so it was an idea that was bubbling along for a couple of years. 
and it, it takes a while to get these things up off the ground in in you know in a corporate environment or you know or, or you know in, in an industrial site like we have in St James's Gate. Um, but once the garden was established or, or, or built, and we can maybe come back to how we did that at, you know, later on, but once it was built, actually people naturally gravitate towards it. And you know, we, we put the call out very publicly for people who are interested to come along. And interestingly, most of the people that came along weren't gardeners. They were people who... Had a, had a passing interest and were keen to sort of help out and learn on the way. Um, and begin, you know, so we had a lot of people beginning their gardening journey or, or their food growing journey, maybe more specifically with us in the garden in St. James's Gate. Um, and that's quite a, it's quite an honour in a way, isn't it, to, to bring people along that journey um, and to see them develop and, and see their enthusiasm grow. As, as they got more experience and success under their belt and, you know, they take home a, a punnet or something that they've helped to grow. Um, that, that's really life-affirming, I think. Tell us about the planning and the setup. Yeah, so obviously we were working with a, you know, a, a fairly limited area that had no soil or had a little bit of soil in it. Um, and so we, you know, we kind of figured out we'd have to go the, the raised bed route um, and to do that is going to be you know there's quite a lot of effort involved in building those and bringing the soil in or whatever and we, we realized we weren't going to do that through just employee people we need to to get a bit of money together to, to pay somebody to do that um, so we we got some senior sponsorship going in the organization um, from a couple of, of sectors um but people senior in the organization who could support us from a financial perspective as well as a kind of you know overall support within the organization perspective and um so we got some money together got a budget together and, and did the build uh, one spring um and once that was done um you know it was um quite easy then to engage people um, around the site to come along and, and join the garden team um, and to be part of that uh, that process of, of growing on within the within the workplace the idea of the self-sustaining garden is quite an interesting one and I think you can probably you can plan for that depending on what you select to grow as well could you speak to that yeah yeah so I guess you'll have seen Molly what we have in the garden um, so, so as I mentioned, it's a courtyard area, um, and all around the edge we have raised beds, and in those beds we have fruit trees, and we have a variety of fruit trees as well. And, you know, we have apples, as you'd expect. We have pears, we have plums, and we have cherries, and, and they all, you know, they all kind of look after themselves. And we do a little bit of pruning once a year, but otherwise they 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 do their own thing and produce a lovely harvest in the in the autumn time. Um, within the central beds, then we have four big central beds, and they're used primarily for vegetable growing. Um, although we do have some corners put aside for fruit bushes, so soft fruit like uh, red currants, black currants, gooseberries, um, and herbs. So the, your kind of perennial herbs like rosemary, or I said, yeah, they are perennial and they are evergreen herbs, um, and, and thyme and um, we, we avoid the invasive herbs like mint and, and lemon balm because uh, we, we knew it struggled to keep on top of those. So the, 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 the central bed infrastructure is there and it is four beds. So we do a four-year rotation. We move things around um, so that we kind of build that fertility and, and avoid the, the pests and diseases you can get without rotating things. Um, so there's kind of a, a vague plan based on that. Um, but that's about it. Um, so it's, it's more of a communal decision then about what we grow in those beds each year. And that's often based on what was successful last year. And I would like um, to attest to that planning because when we were in the garden a few months ago, it was at the end of an almost two-year period of not being able to access the garden due to 
various lockdowns and various restrictions. And I can say that there were tomatoes and there mm-hmm. were apples and the plants were growing in spite of us, <laughs> in spite yeah. of us not being there. They they still wish to, to do what they do best. And I would love to add as well that there was one of the things that was growing and that was the most happy was the hop wall. Yeah, so I, I guess the early days in the garden, we thought, we're in a brewery here. We're in the home of Guinness. We should try growing some hops. And hops generally aren't grown in Ireland, um, although they used to be. Um, so hops were grown historically in Ireland um, commercially to supply some of the breweries around around the country. And it's great to see actually some of the smaller breweries these days are now growing some of their own hops. Um, so we decided we'd better try growing some hops here, see what happens. Um, so we selected some varieties that we were, you know, were kind of maybe suited to the climate. So it's a cool, islands of cooler climate. So there are some historical varieties that are suited to Ireland. Um, so we chose some of those plants, planted them against a, a very tall wall because hops grow really tall. Um, and to our surprise, they've absolutely loved being there. And they give us a great, um, great harvest of hops every every September. And uh, we, you know, until until I guess the recent couple of years, we would have had a, a hop picking day uh, where we'd have um, a large crew of employees in to, to pick the hops. Um, and uh, at the, you also, you might have seen them. All the hops are like a, a little cone of a of a from the plant, um, so they're quite an unusual thing, um, and they're very sticky. Um, so the hop, and, and they're very aromatic, uh, which is obviously why we use them in beer. It gives, gives a greater aroma for the beer um, and, and the bitterness as well. Um, but so the hop growing day is is always a, a joyful day, I guess, on the site where you know there's, there's great um, aroma, a bit of buzz. And uh, we walk away with very sticky hands as well at the end of it. The hands smell great for a few days afterwards. Um, and we we then we then dry the hops. Um, hops generally need to be dried before they can be used. Uh, so we we have a couple of uh, ovens that we put them in to dry them off a little bit, and then we would use them later in the year to make a a small brew um, for uh, for the gardeners. Um, we brew that in the open gate brewery. Uh, which is our small um, uh, experimental brewery, and uh, we brew hops. We sorry, brew, brew a beer for the gardeners, um, and uh, once or twice it's also appeared on tap within the the Open Gate Brewery tap room as well. I mean, that sounds like a huge success, and I'm curious: are there any other successes that you, or some, or maybe a better way of phrasing that is, what would you classify as success in this workplace community garden? That you've been involved with, have involved with heavily for the last six years. Yeah, so, so for me, a successful garden is one that's also is used. It's not just a garden for the gardeners; it's a garden for everybody who's on site. Um, so it, it needs to be accessible um, in every sense. Um, so accessible in terms of people being able to get into it, but also accessible that. If you do walk into it, there's a picnic table for you to have your lunch or a cup of coffee at, um, or benches around the place. So, so to me, it's about creating a resource for the employees, um, not a garden for the gardeners. Um, although there is that aspect to it as well. Um, so the space is is for everybody within the within the business. I think, um, and to me, that's success. And to see people from all sorts of functions within the business all in the garden together, meeting people they've never met before um, is, is is wonderful. Seeing people walking in with their sandwiches and picking a few salad leaves to put into the sandwich um, or picking an apple or a plum or a strawberry um, as part of their lunch, that's great. And we encourage people to do that. Um, and again, it's not just for the gardeners, it's for, for the employees. Um, so I always we, we always encourage people to to pick and sample things as they're, as they're in there. And if we're gardening and there's people sitting around, they might show an interest, or we might engage them, and they might start growing, or they might start joining us. Um, and really surprisingly, we found 
many people in the garden had never seen some of these things growing before. Um, so blackcurrant, redcurrants, you know, they were surprised to people to see that they could be grown in Ireland um, on a bush very easily. Um, similarly with plums um, and pears, um, you know, people, I think quite a few of our employees had never seen those growing. And actually people were asking me, what are those on that tree? Are they plums? And, you know, I say, yeah, they are. And try one. They're delicious. Um, and that, that was quite a surprise to me um, that, that 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 disconnection had, had actually happened within, you know, within a certain population. Um, and it's, it's a way to address that, I think, as well. Uh, so people see food being grown and uh, it helps them connect with it. And, and creates that, that food empathy, I guess, that, that uh, GRY talks about a lot. That was really important. And that potentially was an unexpected success. Yeah, it, it was hugely, hugely, yeah. Um, and, and I guess if, if you're a gardener and grower, you kind of forget about some of these things. Um, and it's important to, to, to appreciate that and realise that, I think, um, as we garden and, and move along along that, that trajectory of learning. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned, I mean, there's a huge number of successes in what you've just described there. The very fact of, of growing the stone fruits, growing the hops, the getting the, the rosemary established and happy, these are all successes. But then, as you say, it's the space to meet people outside of your your work setting in your break and to connect over how great the raspberry tastes or having never seen a plum tree before. It's a really strong strengthening activity. It, it absolutely is. And, you know, I, I've seen people from, you know, massively different work backgrounds and ages um, working shoulder to shoulder, digging the ground for the potatoes or, or harvesting things. Um, we've quite a lot of young people who help in the garden, in the gardening crew, and it's great to, to get that engagement. And we have a few older lemons as well. Um, you know, one of our gardeners retired last week, actually, at the age of 65. Um, and, you know, he, he brought a great deal to the party. Um, and uh, you'd often see him working alongside people in their 20s. Um, and generally, you know, these people might not have ever had a chance to talk to each other. Um, so we've created that opportunity um, for them to engage and share learnings and share stories. Um, and uh, that, that is fantastic in a workplace because it creates alliances um, and that, that keeps the gardening reference, I guess, across fertilization um, between, between people from different, different departments, different parts of the business, but creating friendships. Um, and that actually has spin-offs into the workplace as well you know, because then you get to know more people and you might begin to work with them in the future and uh, as you do so you've already got a relationship established and I think that, that strengthens a workplace for sure. Definitely going to poach that phrase Tim cross-fertilisation it's a very <laughs> good one and I would imagine also that the very act of getting your hands in the soil is a very good de-stressor. Um, so it, it absolutely is, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it, it's funny. Um, you know, we we have people coming into the garden for just half an hour at lunchtime, and they may garden, they may not. They might just sit down and have a chat, need to sandwich and chat with the people who are gardening. Uh, but they physically change over that half an hour sometimes from being a bit frazzled coming in to, to walking away, you know, maybe with dirty hands, um, but they've done something very tangible and very, very different um, in that half an hour. And uh, I think that can make a real difference, um, you know, particularly as we're in a world now where a lot of people are spending a lot of time on the screens, on Zoom, Teams, or whatever it is, um, and getting that half hour away in fresh air or daylight um, natural light and connecting with, with nature a little bit um, gives energy, I think, and you know sets people up for the afternoon better. Maybe there's a very strong link to employee well-being 
um, which you know is is not something we talk about really overtly. Um, but you know, we we get strong support from our HR team around the garden for that that reason. Um, and um, you know, it is there's no agenda there. It's, it's just it it helps it helps employee wellbeing and uh, it's recognised to do such. I think. Well, Tim, I mean, talking to you makes me want to go out and start a garden in my workplace, which is incredibly ironic because <laughs> there's quite a few gardens in my workplace, but wow. I've, I've, I feel incredibly inspired. So I'll have to funnel my inspiration into something else. Maybe I'll start in an, a community garden in my local park. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. And thank you very much, Tim. So Baz, I think of of all of the satisfying things in the world, uh, drinking a pint of Guinness is probably one of them. But if you grew the hops yourself, I think that's uh, a new <laughs> different scale of smug altogether. Um, Absolutely. And they're actually, they're a deadly thing to grow hops. Like they're, I've, I've um, there's, a, there's a garden called Coakley Gardens down in Wexford where they grow some hops as well, I think. Um and and they just get so enormous, like they're incredibly impressive, like growing up against the wall. They go up to kind of four or five meters in height, you know. Um, so I think that's just class. And I do love that idea that um, they're, you know, different employees from kind of different, different departments and different levels within the organization getting to meet each other. You know, uh, I think harks back to that idea that food growing is the great it's the great kind of leveler, you know, um, uh, between people. Um, so I think I think it's class and really proud that there's a, a GIY garden in in the iconic James's Gate. Um, I think I think you know there there's moves afoot. I think with with um, the likes of Morris and what we see in in Diageo and so on, um, like heading the, heading in the right direction. And I think we've even come across an example over the last few years. Of of a tech company that actually hired a horticulturist, so they had a um, they had space in a you know in a in a kind of classic um, industrial estate. There was a bit of land there, and they hired hired a um, a grower to grow the veg, um, that was then making its way into the into the the canteen kind of the corporate catering scenario. Um, so I think it's it's something that's very very doable, and I guess every. Every company, if they had a small amount of space, they could move in that direction of what we do here in Grow HQ, where where the kitchen is kind of, you know, reliant on the 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 produce coming out of the veg patch. I think that's um, involving employees like in the food system in that way and and helping them to make better food choices. Um, it's just got to be a better place to go, and it ticks all the boxes for, I suppose, the management teams in these companies. They're motivating their employees. They're they're you know, helping them uh, become more sustainable and just give, creating a really um, top-notch food environment as well. Yeah, and I think for any company that is trying to figure out what to do about climate change, you know, where they're going to go, uh, a great first step is just get everyone talking about it, get everyone thinking about it um, yeah. and, and let those sort of those conversations across the department, you know, lead to, you know, new ways of thinking across, across the business in, in any which way. And many companies are taking this approach, including several with ourselves as part of Grow Circle, our workplace engagement program. Um, Molly, you've been delivering this program to all kinds of companies, big and small, uh, this year. Tell us what you've learned. Uh, how can a company kick off a food growing program for their employees? What is needed for a workplace garden is quite similar to what's needed for a community garden. You need a budget. You need a rolling, you need a startup budget and a rolling budget. And you also need an organizational plan. You need people who are going to show up um, regularly to keep the garden ticking over. And finally, you need to plant for sustainability, plant perennials, plant things that don't require too much, too much care or attention. I would like to say that you don't have to have a garden to have a growing initiative. You can have a growing initiative in your team, across team, interdepartmental. We also heard from Tim today that growing together can forge bonds that wouldn't normally be forged in any other way. You might meet somebody that you would never meet in any other work setting, and that will be of benefit for when you do have to work with them in the future. If you find it difficult to access land, if you find it difficult to access funding, why not consider a Grow Circle program? These will support you in engaging and growing together without the challenges of the 
community garden in a workplace setup. Beautiful, Molly. Thank you so much. Thanks, Barry. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, you can get involved and find out more at giy.ie. And to say thanks, you can also get 20% off anything at our online shop by using the discount code GIY20. And remember that we are a social enterprise, which means all income that we generate goes back into funding the mission to get the world to grow their own food. And we couldn't do this podcast without the support of Rethink Ireland and the Community Foundation for Ireland. In our next episode, we will chat about the food we eat in restaurants as a potential force to end hunger and meet the chef turned grower at Michelin star restaurants, I'm sure. If you want food done right, grow it yourself. Until next time, happy growing.